0: Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow at Cato.
1: And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato.
0: Today, we're taking a break from things that go boom, um, or as our former Cato colleague Justin Logan liked to describe it, guns, bombs, and dead people. Instead, we're going to focus on another key tool of foreign policy, but one that we don't talk about too much, and that's humanitarian aid. Um, Particularly in this administration, where the Trump administration has shown a lot of disdain for non-military tools of foreign policy, I think it's more important than ever that we understand that not every U.S. action abroad has to involve military strikes. So joining us today to discuss this is Jessica Trisco-Darden, an assistant professor of international affairs at American University's School of International Service. And her work focuses at the intersection of international development and international security. So, Jessica, welcome. Thanks for having me. As always, we'll start off with uh, a little conversation about the news, and it's been another very busy couple of weeks. Um, Perhaps the biggest news since we last talked, of course, is Donald Trump's decision to end US participation in the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal, um, by refusing to waive sanctions. So the JCPOA isn't dead, but it is on life support. Where do we go from here?
1: War. War is the next stop on the on the line. Um, there are going to be a few a few intermediate bumps between there and conflict. But I, I frankly don't see a way to save the deal, um, and I don't think the Trump administration is interested in saving the deal. I, I mean, I can't predict war. That's silly. But um, I, I'm afraid that I don't see a lot of good uh, ideas coming from the administration right now between nothing and and war. I mean, I'd love to hear someone have a better idea.
2: Does this mark the beginning, you think, of a new trend in American unilateralism?
1: Uh, I, we've been pretty unilateral for a long time. I don't know if it's new, but um, I mean, certainly the Trump administration isn't much for multilateralism in general.
0: It's, it's certainly been interesting in this entire process how much the Trump administration has been willing to sort of re- rely on unilateral means. I mean, so the, the administration was working very closely with the Europeans in the run up to this announcement. And apparently, Trump just made his decision and basically cut the Europeans out at the last minute, even though they'd been negotiating. So he's really not showing that he has much respect for those processes, I guess.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, you look at who's got Trump's ear maybe even a little bit right now, uh, that's a little hard to tell because mostly he seems to do his own thing like at 4.30 in the morning on Twitter, but um, you know, Bolton is the new person. Uh, I mean, I, you have to imagine he's probably listening to Bolton more than uh, most people. Um, he's the new flavor for Trump probably. And I think we're all pretty clear that Bolton is a fairly hawkish fellow. He's called for war on Iran a lot in the past. Um, And, you know, I'm sort of reminded of the way the neocons after the first Gulf War in the 90s kept calling for regime change in Iraq, and eventually they got it. And they've been doing the same thing on Iran for a very long time. Now they have a president who kind of has hawkish unilateral instincts, and you have Bolton sitting there as a national security advisor. To me, you know, I'm not going to say it's a over 50% chance here, but I would just say that it wouldn't look weird if the same sort of thing happened.
0: I am a little more skeptical than you are. Perhaps I still have just a little more hope um, that we're not headed straight into conflict. I think there's a lot to come between now and then, as it were. But, uh, but it certainly doesn't look good. And you know the administration really doesn't seem to have a clear plan for what we're actually going to do next in this process. So let's shift from from that to I guess, our other intractable problem of the of the year, which is North Korea. Um, and again, John Bolton is very heavily involved in this. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 16th of May. Um, just this morning, the North Koreans um, issued statements, uh, which initially things had looked very rosy, like we were headed for a big summit. Um, This morning, they issued statements basically saying that denuclearization is no longer on the table um, and and warning Trump against listening to his own national security advisor, which is a a nice attempt, I guess, to drive a wedge into the administration. Um, So, again, do we have any idea where this is going? I think one big question uh,
2: as regards North Korea is what tools do we have? What cards do we have to play? Um, And one card that has always been part of the conversation but never a central focus of that conversation is foreign assistance, um, and in particular, food aid. In past negotiations with North Korea, um, it's featured in 2011 and 2012, but also in particular in the mid-1990s, whether the United States should strategically provide food aid as part of our engagement with that country. And you've had people like Andrew Natsios, the former administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, make strong arguments, particularly against the Obama administration, that the Obama administration was using aid as an incentive in its negotiations and that this was really the wrong approach. So one thing that I haven't seen the Trump administration address yet is this question of what tools are we using in these negotiations.
0: It's true. We've, we focus so heavily on this denuclearization issue that we we haven't really talked about the other aspects of the deal. And And Trump has said perhaps that he might be willing to give up some troop presence in South Korea, that'd be a huge step um, for the US, or make other military concessions. But there's been almost no discussion of this, um, I guess, food for peace deal, which has typically formed the backbone of a lot of North Korea negotiations in the past.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is a weird one where I, I sort of imagine this is a little bit like a human version of a of a ex- exotic physics experiment in a superconducting conducting super collider where you're trying to create uh and manage two uh weird particles that don't really exist in nature under normal conditions you have trump and kim jong-un and and, and then what happens when you put those two things together lord only knows i mean it, kaboom is one possibility it seems like but um you know, I just don't think you can predict the actions of either of these two countries right now and I you know and maybe if someone can I don't think the United States can predict what North Korea is going to do uh, we certainly have zero track record of, of doing that real well. Um, and so I just, I I can't imagine what's going to happen next. I, you know, at first I thought, well, it looks like North Korea is doing a lot of things that would lead you to believe they actually want to do some talking, but, you know, you're suspicious, but, well, it looked good. And Trump was doing things that also looked good. Like, this goes undiscussed, but Trump tried to pull troops out of South Korea before the Olympics and and got sort of smacked down by John Kelly, evidently, as far as we know. Um, that's Trump's been doing some things that made it seem like he might be interested in actually talking, but come on. I mean, there's no plan for what's really going to go. Is North Korea really going to give up its nukes? No. So what's the plan then? What are the tools? I, I, you know, the Trump administration has not made public that they have had good conversations about this stuff. And the fact that they switched to Bolton here, sort of mid-run, the, all the things they might have been discussing before then, I think, are tossed out the window. And Bolton's redoing all this on the fly.
0: I guess, uh, you know, the the related question is, if we're going to talk about humanitarian aid in this context is, you know, we, we talk a lot about North Korea as, you know, nuclear power. Now it's a big threat, it's a military threat, we should be aware of it. But the humanitarian aid dimension points out that North Korea is also a deeply impoverished state. I mean, we're basically talking about talking to a country about its nuclear weapons program while at the same time we're saying that the people in that country might not even have enough to eat as a result
2: and it's complicated further by the fact that resources are directly controlled by the government right food distribution access to food is fundamentally a political issue in North Korea so how do you address that right we know that Child malnutrition, chronic malnutrition is at a rate of 28% in North Korea. In South Korea, it's 2.5%. There is a huge gaping hole in the level of development between North Korea and South Korea. And so if we're talking about denuclearizing the peninsula, about bringing the North and South closer together, what is going to be done to address these fundamental issues that differentiate these two societies?
0: Yeah. And, and it's actually, again, an issue that doesn't get a lot of conversation or focus here in the US. Um, but there are big generational differences within South Korea about the desirability of reunification. And to a large extent, it has to do with you know, older people may have family members on the other side of the line, may remember when Korea was unified. Younger people look instead at these disparities and say, how could we possibly absorb that society into ours? Which is, you know I mean, many steps beyond what we're talking about here, but still a big problem.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how nuclear weapons kind of blots out all other discussions.
0: Well, uh, on that uh, on that note, um, let's I guess segue towards our main topic for the day. But first, um, as always, I want to ask you, Jessica, our surprise question of the day, which is: um, Can you tell us a, a book or a lecture, or a professor, a class, something that that is the reason that you decided to pursue international affairs as as a career. Why why are you interested in these topics? I think that I'm
2: different from a lot of scholars in the sense that my life has been very deeply shaped by international politics and international relations. My mother's family fled the Marcos regime in the Philippines while she was a college student. She protested uh, against the imposition of martial law and A year later, my family was out of the country um, as, you know, I wouldn't go so far to say as political refugees, but people who had the means and the will to actively choose not to live under a military dictatorship. And so, you know, I grew up with that being part of my family history. And as a result, I think that I was deeply interested in international politics and the way that it influences lives all over the world, right? American foreign policy does not only affect the lives of Americans, it affects the entire world, and I think that if you have that perspective, you have no choice but to be engaged with it. That's
0: a really great answer. I think, I think that's definitely the best answer we've had so far to this question. Um, well, let's, let's start talking about our main topic for the day, and, and that's humanitarian aid. And this is something I know you've worked on a lot in the context of sort of development and security issues. Um, but I think in, in recent years, it's become unclear what we mean when we talk about humanitarian aid, humanitarian intervention. Um, So could you help us just break down those distinctions? What do you conceptualize as, as humanitarian aid?
2: Absolutely.
0: Humanitarian
2: assistance is foreign assistance that's provided with the intention to save lives, to alleviate suffering, to maintain human dignity. Um, And what really distinguishes humanitarian assistance from foreign aid more generally, or perhaps what we've referred to as humanitarian interventions, which were really military operations um, that had some of these same goals, is humanitarian assistance is focused on key four principles, humanity, impartiality, neutrality, and independence. And what those mean in practice is that humanitarian assistance is focused on maintaining human dignity in a way that is apolitical and impartial, that's not being driven by any particular donor's agenda. Practically then, humanitarian assistance is focused on responding to things like man-made crises such as internal displacement from conflict or man-made famines. Um, But it also focuses on kind of natural disasters and acts of God like floods or tsunamis that happen around the world regularly. Humanitarian assistance can also be used to help strengthen disaster preparedness to kind of protect societies um, from these harms. And as a result, it typically takes the form of things like relief supplies, food aid, tents. You know, This is the image, I think, that we have a lot of humanitarian assistance. There's also a really strong medical component. But the key is that all of this is distributed on the basis of need, as opposed to some broader political agenda.
0: And I think that's really an interesting way to put it, particularly the point about neutrality, because it seems like a lot of people around the world these days consider American aid to be sort of strings attached, um, or it's only given to those that we like, um, and, and there is a certain element of truth to that. Whereas what you describe as you know the the core principle of humanitarian intervention does sound very much like it's basically just about helping the neediest in difficult situations.
2: Absolutely. And so the United States currently provides about $1 billion in humanitarian assistance through the uh, United States Agency of International Development's Office for Foreign Disaster Assistance. But it provides billions more to multilateral institutions. So for example, in 2017, the United States provided $2.5 billion to the UN's World Food Program. That was as much as the European Commission, Germany, and the United Kingdom, which were the three next largest donors, combined. Um, The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, for example, which operates UN-run refugee camps all over the world, received almost $1.5 billion from the United States in 2017. And again, that's more than the next six largest donors combined. So we do provide assistance bilaterally On a country-to-country basis, we send in disaster assistance and response teams, DART teams, but we do a lot more multilaterally, and I think in many ways that's hidden from the American people because it goes through institutions such as the UN, and it's part of a multilateral uh, engagement effort. So this goes back to the question of, is the United States a country that's going to move forward engaging multilaterally through these institutions or unilaterally through direct assistance?
1: Uh, that's a that's a very interesting question. I just keyed on a couple of things while you were talking there. One is the phrase intervention, uh, because there are really two meanings of that word, which I think are really important to distinguish in this case. One is like a medical intervention, which is sort of the friendly kind, where you ask the doctor, please help me, and then the doctor might later describe what they, he or she did as a medical intervention to help you get healthy. The other, of course, is the military intervention meaning of intervention, which is, you didn't want me to be here, but I'm here anyway, because I need to intervene in something that's going on. And I think it's, I think it's blurred in our discussions of this, because sometimes we... We do the military kind of intervention and we say it's for humanitarian purposes. Is there such a thing as military humanitarian intervention or is that just like not even a thing in your sense?
2: So the military definitely has a central role to play in some humanitarian responses. So I'll use the word response to kind of try and differentiate what we're discussing here. Um, The Department of Defense can participate in the provision of humanitarian assistance based on direction from the president or State Department authorization. And this often occurs at the request of um, a U.S. ambassador abroad who realizes that there there's a role for the military to play. And in many instances, the DOD really is the first US agency to respond to foreign disasters, in part because we have such forward deployment globally, um, but also because we have readily deployable resources. So if we Think back to the natural disasters that happened recently in our region, Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma, which really affected the Caribbean. We can kind of use Puerto Rico and the response there as a lens to understand the role that the military can play. So, for example, in Puerto Rico, the military hospital ship, the USNS Comfort, spent nearly two months supporting humanitarian relief efforts in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. There were a lot of problems with that response, which we don't need to go into today, but it's an indication of the type of capabilities that the US military can bring to bear. The other issue though is that, as with all things U.S. government, there are lots of problems with authorization. So, for example, um, USAID's disaster assistance response teams were able to go into neighboring Caribbean countries um, immediately and set up relief efforts. The question was raised whether those same teams could respond to the disaster in Puerto Rico. Um, And because of complex personnel contracting rules, we weren't able to use our foreign assistance tools domestically. Um, And so there is a little bit of a disconnect there between the capabilities and capacities that the United States has to respond abroad and what it's able to do at home.
0: Yeah, so perhaps the the closest analog to some of what you're describing is when the National Guard responds internally to some crisis, but the the sort of the legal uh, situation surrounding that is entirely different. Um, I want to push you more on this, this military question though because it seems to me that there's also a real tendency in US foreign policy to conflate humanitarian aid with military aid or you know, capacity building, partnership building uh, aid that the military does or, or even military arms sales sometimes. And so it, it seems like those things get bundled together a lot.
2: Part of that issue is a result of the United States having one of the most expansive definitions of foreign assistance. So when Europe talks about foreign assistance or foreign aid, they're really referring to what the OECD calls official development assistance. And official development assistance is funds provided by official agencies, which are administered for the promotion of economic development and the welfare of developing countries. Those are primarily grants or rates, uh, loans with really good interest rates, for example, whereas the United States definition of foreign assistance includes any tangible or intangible item provided by the U.S. government to a foreign country or international organization. And that includes an array of services, training, technical advice, also agricultural commodities such as food aid, U.S. dollars, or currencies of any kind. So this really expansive definition includes military assistance because military assistance is often technical training, but also commodities, right? Military hardware, which is sold at below market rates. Um, And other countries really don't consider that foreign assistance. So it sets up this conflation of humanitarian aid, which many, many countries do, and military aid, which primarily the United States is the main actor in that space.
0: One imagines that also probably inflates uh, so that it looks like we're spending more on humanitarian aid than we actually are because much of it's military aid.
2: So in general, about 60% of U.S. foreign aid is economic and development focused. But 40% of it is security or military related. Um, And a lot of that can be, for example, State Department assistance for international narcotics control. That's a security related program, but it also does include direct military assistance. What is interesting, though, is that even though this proportion of economic to military aid is fairly stable, we're seeing a lot of fluctuation in the overall levels of U.S. foreign assistance that are given. So planned foreign assistance under the Trump administration for fiscal year 2019 is $27.7 billion dollars under the last Obama administration's budget request, it was 42.4 billion. So that's a 35% decline in foreign assistance resources over the past two to three years.
1: And, and do we know what exactly is gonna be cut? What's what's the, where's the big difference coming there?
2: So there's been a uh, consolidation of Programming in the HIV AIDS space, a lot of global health programs really boomed under the Obama administration in part because USAID's director Radshaw was a global Public health guy. Um, And so there was a lot of investment in that area. We've also seen, you know, some decline in climate related funding, but also things that make sense, right? There was a a real explosion of foreign assistance to Iraq and Afghanistan as a result of the conflicts there. But as conditions have improved uh, in Iraq in particular, there's been an attempt to kind of bring that down a bit. Um, Interestingly, however, the first Uh, Trump budget request for 2018 got huge pushback from Congress in part because the cuts to foreign assistance did not seem particularly well thought out or justified. And in the actual appropriations process, Congress, you know, essentially wrote back like, we're, we're not doing this because you've given us no reason to. So there's definitely been a lot of push and pull between the administration and Congress on the issue of foreign assistance.
0: That's really interesting. And, I, I you know, I think it does speak to sort of a broader ambivalence, not not just from, from President Trump, who has quite clearly articulated that he's ambivalent about things like foreign aid. But, um, but among the American public in general, there's a, a fair amount of ambivalence about whether humanitarian aid is, is something we should be doing. And I think that's something you just don't see in public opinion in Europe. You don't see it so much in Canada or other Western countries. I guess you've definitely argued that humanitarian aid is worth it regardless. But why is there the skepticism and, and you know why, why are we doing it anyway?
2: So, When it comes to whether we should be providing humanitarian assistance, I think there's a really big disconnect between the fact that the United States is indisputably the world's largest donor of humanitarian assistance. No one provides more money for humanitarian assistance than the United States, period. But – The actual budget, when you look at it, of the Office for Foreign and Disaster Assistance within USAID is far less than 1%, less than half a percent of the total federal budget, right? $1 billion is a drop in the bucket of the federal budget. And yet the work done by this agency really has an outsized impact in the communities, that benefit from humanitarian assistance, right? It is of huge symbolic value that we can respond as a nation with compassion and with engagement when a disaster occurs abroad, right? It builds goodwill, but more importantly, it saves lives. And so I think that In an era where kind of U.S. motives are always suspect abroad that this is something very concrete that we can be doing to demonstrate the goodwill and the humanity of the American people.
1: So just to follow up Emma's Emma's question, so what you're saying is the American public doesn't care about any of that. That's why they – and one of the other – just when people are asked how much they think the United States spends on foreign aid, they wildly overestimate and so maybe some of the reasons they think we do too much. I mean, what, what? Why does the public not agree with your well-argued sentiment?
2: I think a lot of it has to do with math. Um, I mean, there are a lot of numbers involved. There are lots of different agencies and instruments through which we provide foreign assistance. I think most recent surveys have indicated that um, people think it's about you know 25 percent of the federal budget, when really it's hovering around less than 1% of the federal budget. But I think that's really attributable to also that um, USAID, which is our primary instrument for providing foreign assistance, it's really focused on engagement abroad. It's not focused on engagement with the American public. And so that's something that the international development community needs to do better, right, Is, is communicating to the American public why this is important, what the actual resource requirements are and what we're able to provide given those limited resources. Um, I think also the flip side is that, you know, over the past few decades, there really has been this kind of international development industry that has developed um, that, you know, individuals who perhaps work with local church groups or, you know, go on um, missions overseas see and don't really understand the idea that we have um, NGOs serving um, this role, but also contractors, people bidding for uh, what is essentially kind of development or humanitarian work overseas. I think that that's hard to explain to the American public that the US government can't do it all on its own, that we do have to rely on private entities to do some of this work. But I also think more generally that the things blowing up is more newsworthy, right, than children not dying of tuberculosis or not contracting malaria. Um, And so it's hard to pitch or to share the successes that foreign aid has abroad to the American public. And so whenever I go out... um, You know, I recently gave a talk uh, in Texas. I recently spoke to some members um, who are kind of up-and-coming politicians in Georgia, right? Everyone wants to hear about the successes of foreign aid. Sometimes those are hard to pinpoint, um, but sometimes we just don't do a very good job of communicating them.
0: It's always very hard to, to show when something isn't happening. So uh, I guess we need to do a better job of that. Um, so let's move towards some more specific topics here because we, we've talked about this pretty generally. But in the last few years, um, I feel like the topic of humanitarian aid has become perhaps a little more politicized even than usual. Um, and people have been making some really unusual arguments about it, particularly in the context of, of Syria, of Yemen and some of the other crises that are going on at the moment. Um, So I want to talk about a couple of articles that you wrote recently, Um, and one is on Syria and on the question of access. Um, Sometimes you have to work with unpleasant people to get humanitarian aid into the places that actually need it. Um, And you wrote that humanitarian organizations probably have to just accept that bargain and and do it when necessary. Um, So could you go into that a little more for us? So the piece that
2: I wrote, um, essentially arguing that military action should not be taken to protect a humanitarian response was based on some concerns that I had about discussions that were ongoing at the UN that seemed to be advocating for the use of militaries to enforce a ceasefire in order to allow for humanitarian aid deliveries. And that to me seems to be an incredibly counterproductive approach. Why? Well, because that sort of action would have a profound effect on the battlefield, right? Any military intervention alters the battlefield space. And that would then have trickle-on effects for any claim that the humanitarian aid that followed would be apolitical. And so I really believe that even though taking that action may have looked right or felt like the right thing to do in Syria at that moment, it would have violated international humanitarian principles and that would have had follow-on effects for the international humanitarian system. Ultimately, military action was taken, but it was directed towards uh, the use of chemical weapons, which has its own international regime separate from the humanitarian regime. Um, And I think it shows that the system that we have internationally governing conduct it's far from perfect, but I also wonder what the world would look, look like without it. Um, and so yes, sometimes we have to engage with regimes or actors, um, you know, opposition actors even, that we might find unsavory, that might not seem like they have individuals' interests at heart. But whoever controls territory in a given country, I think should really be considered irrelevant as long as the goal of achieving access for humanitarian groups is achieved. And I know that sounds a little crazy, right? Like that we should be okay with working with North Korea if it means that we can get nutritional assistance into babies in that country, that it should be okay working with the Assad regime if it means that people um, can be fed when there's a state of siege. But I think that humanitarian actors really do recognize the necessity of engaging with whomever controls the situation. And it goes back to these objectives of humanitarian response, right? To be impartial and to be neutral. And so when you're distributing humanitarian assistance, there is not a political litmus test that needs to be taken before that assistance is provided. Um, And that's really been the core of humanitarian response uh, since it was created.
1: Yeah, I I find it really interesting that uh, in many places around the world where NGOs are busy doing things uh, whether it's an active conflict zone or not they will they will stay very far away from American military forces and even just uh, civilian American government. Uh, folks, because they don't want to be seen as in, as partial to the American side or whatever, which is already a suspicion. If you have a Western NGO, there's already a suspicion that they might have a side, you know. And so I think I think that's you know for NGOs, freedom of action and for not getting themselves killed and other things like that. And you know that's a really important principle. I think one of the questions one has though is that. Uh, you know, and, and I'm I'm not sort of questioning the the general thing, but in some particular cases, it seems to me that warlords can actually use this in a sense against the humanitarian organizations. I mean, they, they can play the fact that humanitarian organizations want to be neutral to their benefit sometimes. Right? They if, I I need some of my people to get help or whatever. I mean, it's not apolitical. Humanitarian aid is apolitical in its ideals, but not always in reality.
2: Absolutely, and it's interesting that you bring up the question of attacks on aid workers because um, those are monitored, and every year an annual report is put out. And so some of the most dangerous countries to operate in for aid workers are Syria, as one would expect, but also a country like South Sudan, that since its creation um, has received about $11 billion in assistance from the United States. Um, and the question there is, you know, what what is the relationship between security and the provision of humanitarian assistance, right? It would be great if security enabled humanitarian assistance to be provided, that if it was some sort of precondition. But that's not the reality, right? Assistance needs to be provided in highly unstable, highly complex situations. And I agree that there clearly are political consequences to distributing aid, right? That was clear um, when the Balkans was collapsing and there were issues uh, about humanitarian access in Bosnia and Kosovo. It's clear now in Syria. It's clear in Yemen. There are clearly political consequences at play. But... What is the alternative, right? So yes, foreign aid uh, can be used by warlords and governments alike, right? If they're able to capture aid supplies, but I think that many organizations rightly see this as a cost of doing business, right? That that they are trying to save lives, that they are trying to make a difference. And that might seem like crazy compassion talk, but I think that a lot of the individuals who work um, for humanitarian organizations really are driven by moral uh, mission. And so it's this very complex moral calculus of, you know, are you willing to contract with private security actors to make sure that you can get into a far-flung territory in order to provide assistance? Are you willing to do whatever it is to kind of buy access from local political leaders to be able to provide that assistance? Um, And I think ultimately a lot of those decisions come down to the moral judgments of individuals, and I hope that the people making those moral judgments are are motivated at least by um, by the right things.
0: Well, uh, that, that seems like it's a fairly good note to start to wrap up on, but before we go, it does really seem that humanitarian aid is just facing a lot more challenges today than it has been even in in recent years. There are an increasing number of crises that are very complex. Perhaps there aren't more crises or more wars than there used to be, but the complexity of the situation is is definitely worse than it has been. Um, So I guess from your point of view, what do you see as the future of aid? What are the big challenges that are out there? And I guess what can we do about them?
2: I think funding is a major challenge. And I think that It's understandable in many ways that the Trump administration wants to take a step back and reflect because we saw a massive expansion in the foreign aid budget under both the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. And I do think that it is reasonable to question whether that trajectory needs to or ought to continue. But I also wonder um, what it means broadly that the United States is taking a step back in a lot of these efforts. So, for example, uh, appeals in Yemen have not reached their funding goals. Last year, the UN tried to raise $114 million for humanitarian assistance to North Korea. It's not a ton of money internationally, but they were only able to raise $31 million of that. So we're talking about massive massive funding shortfalls for a lot of programs uh, that can do a lot of good. That's one issue. I think that in response, we're going to see a shift to a lot more kind of crowdfunding type approaches. So for example, the United States has really rolled back its commitment um, to the United Nations Refugee Works Agency, UNRWA, which runs Palestinian refugee camps. Um, And in response, that UN agency has really tried to drive an online appeal, has turned to other donors. So there's also the potential to see a lot more um, philanthropy, I think, active in the humanitarian space than has been in the past, perhaps out of necessity. Um, But I also think that there are some serious challenges like government surveillance. Um, And so there's been a push in international development more broadly to support the use of kind of mobile technologies. We saw recently that over concerns of fraud in U.N. refugee camps, they've moved to biometric registration cards um, and those sorts of technologies. And I think that opens the space for a lot of government surveillance and monitoring of really vulnerable populations. and and we should be actively concerned about the implications of that, particularly when people are fleeing political conflicts. Um, we've also seen, uh, particularly with the Rohingya crisis, the difficulty of how humanitarian crises interact with kind of difficult political regimes, but also um, the fact that not all countries are integrated into the same international regime. So for Bangladesh, for example, is not part of the international refugee regime. And this has made the Rohingya population in Bangladesh, um, which you know, as of April this year was 700,000 people um, really vulnerable to exploitation, to abuse, but also just fundamentally we, we have no system for dealing with this population internationally. And so I think those are some of the really pressing challenges for foreign assistance and the international humanitarian regime.
0: Well, uh, it sounds like we will be hearing a lot more about this in the future. Um, So that's all we have time for today. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, If you want to continue the conversation with us and the rest of the Cato Foreign Policy team, you can find us on Twitter. Um, Our handle is at CatoFP. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Jeff Geld, as always. And if you liked the episode, um, please do leave us a a review on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, We know that a lot more of you listen to this podcast than have left us reviews. So if you're feeling nice, please leave us a review. Thanks.